This happens to me when I am lonely or unwell, trying to imagine the flavours I know my body remembers, stumbling through the recreation of meals I named in another language when the top of my head was parallel with the countertop and I'd do a child-type version of helping, making a mess and possibly causing frustration and amusement and unnecessary clearing up, tasting the sweetness of this and the saltiness of that, comparing this sensory delight with the silence when the pots became empty and the stove was cold to the touch. I'm Nina Friedman, and this is Wearing. Wearing explores where we are. It is dedicated to those who believe in the inherent right of belonging, and all the ways we feel we belong and connect to ourselves, to each other, and the spaces that hold the stories where all of this comes alive where each experience of belonging is a work of art, created by chance or by design. Dare I ask, is belonging where you are, not what matters most? Wearing is the spatial story. Welcome. We speak with Maria Amidou, an artist whose work explores the relationships between people and place and what is hidden, obscured, or unspoken, a clarion voice of the common experience. She unmasks the ignored, mutable stories of migration, unbelonging, and remembering. As part of her creative process, she asks, what part of the other's story belongs to us? Her current social practice artwork takes the form of artist books and site-specific print and photographic installations with occasional integration of her craft practice as a glassmaker. She has exhibited nationally in the United Kingdom and internationally with a number of museums, galleries, and organizations. She is currently a PhD candidate at the Royal College of Art. Her research is titled Making That Remembers. To see the work we will speak about and to learn more about Marie Amidou, visit www.mariaand.co. Maria, I usually begin with a seminal question about belonging. When I think about our discussion, I can't really ask that in a very simple way because it's quite complex. I'd like you to share a little bit about your roots and your journey, but I'd like to frame the conversation a little bit differently. Because when I look at your work, which is all about people and place, there's seems to be this search for that honesty about belonging. And that honesty seems to be a gray zone or a mutation in a way which is sort of unpinnable. You can't really put your finger on it. So for example, the making of marks that disappear the being anchored somewhere while being simultaneously erased. It always seems to have that duality. So when I ask you about your roots and your journey, I'd like if we could talk about it in this way. And where did that begin for you? It's interesting hearing your interpretation of my making marks and also being erased. My roots are Nigerian. I was born here in the UK, in London. And in my growing up, there was a fracture in our family which meant that my growing up became very peripatetic I should say rather that a singular place of belonging 
isn't something that I know. I guess I've always been on a bit of a quest for it, both in, in actuality and also emotionally. I think it's really interesting you describing my work in that way, because I guess sometimes it's something that I don't see. It's interesting you describing this simultaneous mark making and erasure because my experience has been very peripatetic. I started off as an applied artist and then I moved into a socially engaged practice. So for quite a long time, none of my work has been focused on me specifically. I've, I've been working with a collection of sorts and a group of people and then letting the content of the project evolve from those two components. So there's something really interesting about you saying that about all of my work. Somehow it's still ever present, this sense of mutability. The experience of being unanchored is both actual in terms of moving and internal as well. You bring it to the thing, even if you don't even realize you're doing it. So much seems to be in your work, that idea of something that's held, but reformed, and one doesn't really know what's going to happen. These conversations that you have with people in your work, I think that you're very interested in this unknowing and what's unspoken. Yeah. And that lack of predictability. So let's jump into the work, which I'm so drawn to. And I believe it started out as a seat at the table, and then the name of it became Somewhere. Can you tell us about that project? Yeah. It started with an invitation from Gil Doran, who is a socially engaged artist and curator. He wanted to do something about the experience of artists that were from elsewhere. It all happened at the beginning of the year. We decided everybody would bring a dish from their own culture. And we just had this shared meal together and have a conversation. I titled the project A Seat at the Table, which came from me listening to Solange's album, which is called A Seat at the Table, and very much about that sense of exclusion and that constant need to try and encourage others to invalidate your own story. The people that are doing the othering, us that are othered, are often constantly in a situation where we're validating who we are because our narrative might not be as straightforward as others. So I titled it that and that was a really good frame because all the people that were invited knew what that meant. So what we did is we all ate and had this great meandering conversation about all sorts of things to do with identity and the challenges of our lived experiences. And then there was a moment where I invited people to speak for a period of time. I created a series of place settings which had headings like belonging, art making, home, displacement identity yeah so they were the play settings and then inside each there was an envelope and then inside there was a series of questions for each person so I asked them at that moment to open the envelope and to answer the questions that were in it and then I paid very particular attention to the section where everybody spoke about their own element I decided to generate some free writing which is something I do quite a lot I created a prompt for myself and that's what the second set of titles are that you just started reading. So cause, booklet, erasure, etc. I used those to start writing. I literally just wrote spontaneously for 15 minutes and I stopped. Then I had these seven pieces of text and I asked all of the artists to record them and send them back to me. 
this all happened just before lockdown. I had planned to make these little booklets because we were going to have an exhibition and Gil was going to show a film. He wanted to have the audio, the whole meal, this ambient sound in the background. And then, of course, the restrictions happened and he was really keen to put something online instead. I thought, oh, I'm not really sure because I had this idea and I really wanted to make these little books which I was going to sew together. So they're going to be really, really delicate. And this idea of this delicacy, this fragility being a metaphor for the, mm. the peripateticness of, of, of unbelonging. And he said it would be really good if there was some movement so we could film something. So what I did is I typed out each extract that I'd written and then I used a fan to get them to gently move in the breeze and started filming that with my phone. And then he said, well, I wonder if you could think about putting them in water. I said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea because I've been thinking about the word dissolve a lot. So I recreated that. And, and I thought, oh, God, this is going to be interesting, putting this red carbon paper in, into a little tray of water. And I just had this assumption that, that the ink would just dissipate and be a liquid, like a bit like a jellyfish moving, and it would all be just this really, yeah, beautiful, flowing, seeping thing that would happen. But it didn't actually, the carbon actually lifted off in, in pieces. And that blew my mind because visually it was really powerful. And I think not least because it was really unexpected. I lay each one in the water in a slightly different way. What you see in the work is these varying stages of degradation of the separation of the carbon from the paper and into the water. And I made each one slightly different because I wanted there to be a distinction between each extract. And I tried to match the stage of disintegration with the text itself. It was a really lovely process and it was something which was really exciting for me because it was so unexpected. And what was really lovely about it as well was the obviousness and clarity of the metaphorical relationship between the theme and what was happening with the paper in the water. So it's just beautiful, this real moment of magic that happens in these strange serendipitous things that happen in the process of being a creative person. These unpredictable things that, that can send you off into a creative reverie and that's what happened with that project and there's something really nourishing I think about how it happened because of the restrictions of Covid I, I wouldn't have done that otherwise there's something really important about that in terms of the creative practice and how you have to let go but also you have to be prepared to take risks and even though it's a very mild risk that I'm describing but there is that element of unknowing and risk and I think there's a relationship between that and living the experience of somebody that is from elsewhere as well your perspective on things is always slightly peripheral and that peripherality brings forward so many exciting things and it can be very bittersweet obviously if you're thinking about it in terms of whatever your lived experience is but I think it's often generative. And this is what my research is about, the generativeness of this unknowing. If you think about lots of writers and researchers and artists and thinkers, a lot of the exciting things have, have come out of this in-between place because of that experience, as opposed to despite or in spite of that experience. Using water, though, is so perfect yeah. for 
not only this project, but it ties back to what we were talking about before, because the fragments that are fading and disappearing and reforming in the water, you're using water as this territory of absorption and erasure as well, which is so much the metaphor of what you're talking about. And it's this, again, this, what I call the gray zone, this unpinnable, you can really yeah. pin that down. And it's a celebration of that. Yeah, absolutely. And that is both a celebration and also it can be simultaneously comforting and discomforting. It's honest. Yes, thank you. And I think when you are othered, where you're constantly navigating that as well, you're inhabiting this space, literally, and psychologically and metaphorically and it's, it's a constant in the uncertainty of it all. That's also really important. It's a very particular lived experience. I think the generativeness of the lived experience doesn't get uh, celebrated enough. I feel like if you turn on the news and you know, there's an item about some displacement of peoples, more often than not, the tone of it is derisory but if we sat and thought about it for a moment truly thought about what was happening to whoever the person is or the people are it's really profound and it's become so mundane now this conversation about oh well there's a group of people that escaped from here or they left here and then they traveled on a boat and now they're here and now they're in irritation and we just want to send them back because we don't want them here anymore you just think well actually just think for a minute about what that individual person has experienced to get to this point and i think that bit that in-between bit just does not get the credence it deserves. The courage of that individual, the trauma of that experience of having to traverse one place to get to another place of, of safety, that narrative really needs to shift. What I'd like to do is hear some of these amazing texts that you formed. I'll read this one because it relates to the water. And then I'll ask you to share another piece with us. This piece, I believe the initial word the artist was given was identity. Yes. And the critical word that you extracted from that was water. Here it goes. How do you find your place when you arrived by boat with only the words man, woman, apple, and maybe pear? I'm imagining a wall of water, a barrier, but also a curtain a liquid journey of transformation from one state to another, away from Eastern words toward a place of otherness, a quiet entry, giving voice to everyday unfairness, recognizing the bigger problems and choosing when and if to speak, holding on and carrying on, but unanchored. Oh, that was beautiful, Nina. This one really talks to the journey on the boat and the metaphors of the water and then how your work, the carbon papers in the water, that liquid transformation, it's also cohesive. Yeah, it's amazing. And what I love about you reading it is that there is some um, real transformative thing that happens when somebody is reading something that you have written there's this lovely layering thing going on that makes it very present and alive yeah and then what happens is people's own narrative becomes integrated 
Maria, would you like to read one for us? Yeah, I think I want to read Journey. The original play setting was Journey and my writing prompt for myself was Erasure. Yeah, that's a beautiful one as well. Trees stretching outwards towards the oldest, but not necessarily the most important. Landscapes which question. Earth with knowledge that cannot be ignored. Branches and bloodlines forming a mesh of information to be passed back and forth from hand to hand. Mother to daughter, father to son, sister to sister, until the heritage becomes indelible lines across time irrefutable and uncontested by those in power and those on the street, seeing existence as more than survival, as something whole and visible and solid to the touch, viewpoints on a horizon with equal breathing space. Thank you. There's so many wonderful projects to talk about. One which you did a while ago, which was amazing, called Betty, Pat, Diane, Ivy, Lynette and Bonnie. That's one of my favourite projects. Can you tell us about it? It basically is a series of books that I created in response to buildings in Western Sydney that used to be state children's homes. I already knew about one of the buildings before I travelled there. And then whilst I was there, I found out about a couple of others. And before I was travelling, actually, I was reading a book about foundlings. And I got really interested in the role of the mother and how if something happens to the mother, something happens to the family. When I arrived, I decided to find women specifically who had lived in these buildings when they were children. I met six women and I met them at the site and I asked them to talk to me about what they remembered. So the project was very much about remembering and the site specificity of that remembering as well. I walked and talked with them. I didn't record anything because it was about my remembering of what they remembered. And this evolved into a series of books. It's just a limited edition of six books, one for each walker. And the books consist of four images that are rendered slightly differently four times and an object that I collected from the site or that was related to the site in some way. And that sits in the back of each book. I don't have them anymore. I really was aware that the story that they told me was theirs and I I was aware of holding really important information that didn't belong to me and it belonged to them. I wanted to make something for them. A lot of people have said, how will we get to see the work? Why didn't you make more than one copy? And I said, because the story is not mine. Can you tell me what it was like for one or two of the older women and they were coming back to see the home that they lived in when they were younger. It wasn't a pleasant place from what I understand. Yeah, for three of them, it it wasn't great. I think for the three women that were at Parramatta Girls Home, it was very challenging. And I was very aware of being really sensitive to what they were telling me. And also that it's important to identify the difference in the sites as well, because Burnside, was incredibly well kept and it was a series of huge cottages and some of them have been turned into just regular houses now and then some of them are still the site of the Burnside Adoption Service. One of the houses is a museum specifically for the the ex-Burnie kids they called themselves so that it had a very particular energy to it. It was very cared for and loved and preserved and valued. Parramatta Girls Home on the other hand was 
semi-derelict and there was a hauntedness about the place so it was like going into a ghost story it was very interesting how each site created a different dynamic and the experiences at each site for the women was different because of the historical dynamic of the place again another very complex layered returning an interesting point that you raised is where you said the information doesn't belong to me that's a layer of belonging that i hadn't really thought about with a story that's not mine and typically artists want to create the work they want to get it out there they want to take credit for it all of that and you didn't do that but it goes back to the question about information and what information actually belongs to me and what doesn't and how does it belong to me i don't know that we could even answer that question but i find it interesting that you chose to use the word belonging yeah when you were talking about the information personal stories you cannot adopt them yeah, and I think it's a constant debate around social practices and artists going out and, and developing a project based on somebody else's lived experience and then them getting the credit for the work that's created and maybe the person whose story it is doesn't feature. I'm very aware of that. And I'm sure I'm aware of that because of my experiences. It's come up in this body of work that I'm making at the moment, which is about my own family story and how I've had to really think about two things one what I'm sharing in relation to other members of my family that's one thing I've had to consider and the other thing is when I had a residency in a gallery here which was a way for me to begin to play and test out this idea uh, I had an event and I was really clear at the very beginning of the conversation I had rules of engagement and I said to people that there were two things that I wasn't going to do and one wasn't that I wasn't going to answer any questions which were so what happened next and who did what and where did that happen that I wasn't going to answer any questions like that because it wasn't about that it was about the impact of an experience the broader responses to the impact of an experience rather than my idiosyncratic response to it even though the work is framed by that also I said very clearly What you hear here this evening is not yours. It belongs to me. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And I think people were a bit stunned because it meant that they had to think harder about what they wanted to know. Because I think oftentimes people think they can just ask you anything and you're obliged to respond because you are silenced by other people's responses because you have to make a decision whether you're going to say something or not say something, but there's a moment, as Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space, you have to make a decision about how you're going to react to how people are reacting to you. And I realised the other day that what happens is, because it's not the normative set of statements, you either become invisible or you become a spectacle. Mm -hmm. And you have to decide. I'm really thinking about what that means, what that does to me and what it does to the other person. Right. So there's a respect for both sides. Yeah. And I think people that have had a normative experience are incredibly disrespectful, but not intentionally. It's just because it's so unfamiliar to them. And the energy of that curiosity takes over from them pausing in the space and thinking, hang on a minute, let me just think about this. I can't just quick fire these questions at this person. I've over the years become very mindful of that and I wasn't when I was younger 
and I wasn't up until probably about five or six years ago, actually. <laughs> but I've very much really thought about that because it's intrusive. It's unintentionally intrusive. And there's nothing wrong with the unintentional intrusiveness of it because that's just human. People are curious. But there's something very important about giving yourself, the individual who is either the spectacle or invisible, giving themselves to sit in that space that between stimulus and response space taking as much time as they need in that space and deciding whether they are going to respond and I think it worked really well for everybody else as well because it meant that they had to really focus in on what the work was telling them what the work had provoked for them So what happened as a result is people started talking about their own experiences rather than trying to understand every little detail of mine. I think that comes back to my social practice, really, where it really is about trying to find these points of connection, these common experiences and what that can teach us. What can 25 people in a room grappling with experiences of fracture and unbelonging, which might be mine, but then it's holding up a mirror to them in some way. How do those people in a room together then have a conversation about that? The universality of it. Absolutely. I'm really interested in the complexity of emotion and how our complex interior experiences get buried or masked or ignored. I want to expose all of that. I think that is at the heart of where transformation happens. Dear listeners, thank you for being here. I invite you to reflect on what you've heard today and send your thoughts or stories. We would love to hear from you. Stay in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or on our website, thewearing.com. Subscribe free to Wearing wherever you get your podcasts so that you are alerted when the next episode airs. Wearing is a pro bono initiative of Dreamland Creative Projects, which provides architectural and interior design services for the places where we live, heal, age, and inspire. If you wish to have a design consultation, visit dreamlandcreativeprojects.com or email me, nina at dreamlandcreativeprojects.com. Until we meet again, goodbye from Wearing.